and welcome to the Free The Wage Slave podcast. The podcast dedicated to helping frustrated nine to fivers get out of the rat race and succeed working for themselves. I'm Sky Kilji, a former corporate insurance wage slave who now travels the world year round working from my laptop. Part one of my interview with Helen was incredible. Helen took us back in time to childhood, her first steps into the world through dance, attending Oxford and her high-flying career at J.P. Morgan. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you start there. In this episode, we pick up where we left off. Helen paints a vivid picture of life after J.P. Morgan and shares some of her most personal moments with us in the aftermath. We discover how Helen reinvented herself after investment banking, transformed herself through personal development, and her path into being the respected property investor she is today. I hope you enjoy it. So you obviously went down that path of personal development and trying to find your answers. And was that yeah. something that happened immediately after that breakdown? Where did that timeline kind of shift to the Helen now that I know that is all about optimizing okay. her life? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Gosh, this is me being really vulnerable here. There was also something else going on in my life at the time as well. And when you look back, you only see it. But I just got engaged as well to a, like a fabulous, fabulous guy. But that's where my incongruency came. I don't think it was with the work and that lifestyle, albeit lifestyle wasn't conducive physically. But what I had agreed to do by getting engaged to this wonderful person, we'd been together over four years by the time we got engaged but I've never wanted kids and we chatted about that I was always you know me upfront and honest and I'd always been very honest about that and we hoped I think that the body clock would kick in and one day you know you'd wake up and gosh you suddenly want children that never happened to me and he was very definitive that he did want kids. And so I had decided that for the sake of the relationship that I would agree and I, I would I would do that. I would forgo what I wanted and you know and basically yep, yeah, get married, have kids, have the two point four children, have the lovely home and the nice family holidays and go there. And it's only with hindsight that you look back and you're like, ah, okay, I see what was going on here. And and that, I think, is the real kind of fundamental for me, or one of the, you know, the, the main kind of aspects of incongruency for me. So, yeah, so, so that, that was a big part of the story. But when you are then, you know, have basically more or less the next two years in bed because you don't have any energy to get dressed, let alone leave the house, then you have a lot of time on your hands <laughs> to, and you have to fill that somehow. So, you know, people are like, gosh, you've read a lot of books, you've done a lot of courses, you've learned a lot of things. <laughs> I had a lot of time, believe me. And the kind of the annoying thing about chronic fatigue or adrenal fatigue is that your body stops, your body slows down. Let me tell you, your brain doesn't or mine didn't. That curiosity, that need for stimulation, that need to learn did not stop. And I had to meet that somehow. 
And yes, I worked on kind of calming that down. Certainly, that's how I got into meditation. But I also realized that, you know, there, there were bigger life lessons to this. And maybe that's where kind of the interest in philosophy also came back that, like, what does this mean? What is this about? There was a big kind of identity crisis as well. Well, who am I now? Now that I'm not this investment banker, like, who am I? So, yeah, there was, there was a lot of time to do a lot of reading and learning as well. Yeah, I've been through exactly the same path, just a, a parallel path. So I know exactly mm. what that's like. And what I'm interested in is you take that period of time where you're still reading, you're still learning. So the curiosity part of you is, is still very much alive. At some point, we have to reinvent ourselves and say, okay, this is who I'm going to become now. And I'm ready to mold myself in a new fashion. And for me, I got it wrong the first time. It took a few iterations before I got to where, you know, it felt congruent. So who did you decide to reinvent yourself as, or what did you decide to reinvent yourself as when you were ready? It's a really good point. I think you do have to kind of try your test in these things. You're still trying to, you know, find yourself. And I had always had an interest in property. So I, I did go on a property course. I think it was 2010 by that point where I was, you know, I'd got my health back to to the point where I would, you know, could function a few days a week anyway, at least. It, it's been a very slow journey. But I had always had this interest in property. I had a real kind of a good eye for spotting value. Um, and I used to keep, you know, being a spreadsheet geek, I used to keep spreadsheets even on kind of the prices, prices of, of any properties that I bought or owned. And I'd bought my own property kind of as soon as I could, literally when I was 20, I don't know, 24 or something. And... Yeah, I'd always kept spreadsheets and, you know, watch things going up and down and look at the relative value and kind of, you know, understand that and understand how to add value as well. And I just decided, well, actually, it was something that me and my um, ex-fiance, we were going to go, we were going to do together. Eventually, you know, we went our separate ways because we realized that especially the kid question was was irreconcilable for us both to stay true to who we were. So, so we parted ways quite amicably. And at that point, I mean, I tried different things. I do think what, whilst I did have a degree of freedom that I spoke about, I think what being in a corporate does is stifle your creativity. So once I had energy again, I went on things like I went on a floristry course. I went on a hat making course. I went on all these things to try and, I don't know, get some kind of like self-expression back. And I, and actually somebody offered me a job to run her a business actually at the florist, which I did think about, but I also knew I needed more mental stimulation than just doing that as well. So I thought about kind of what I could do that used the skills and certainly kind of the analytical, the number skills and this, you know, kind of gift, if you will, for being able to spot value. And I'm like, right, okay, let, let's do this, you know, let's do this property thing professionally. And I did go into it initially, I have to say, thinking it was going to be quite passive. I could do it part time. I could have a nice kind of easy life, invest the money that I'd built up over the years from banking and also from 
from my own kind of personal property investments. And I thought I could, you know, do that, find some good people to invest with, and it would be really easy. <laughs> and and, and if, I don't know if you've listened to any of my property talks. I just genuinely believe, you know, that there's, if you want to do this properly, that there's no such thing as passive or there hasn't been for me. And maybe I'm just that personality type that, that I can't do it passively. But yeah, it's it's not been passive, but it's been fun and rewarding and in so many different ways. And even, you know, I've been doing it kind of since 2015. And I think even like lockdown has given me renewed kind of purpose and energy and enthusiasm for doing it. So yeah, so that's that's been a journey too. <laughs> I did listen to the podcast with Rod. I think it's the Rodcast and a couple of other ones. And um, mm. what really stood out to me, and you just touched on it then, is the fact that you ran that as a business from day one. And you know, I've seen a lot of people go into property and they don't always have that experience of running a business. Perhaps they've always been an employee. And I definitely see that they seem to struggle more than somebody that does have that experience and does approach it as a business. Oh, totally. And for me, it is a business, but I approached it as professionally investing. So quite frankly, it didn't matter if it was bricks and mortar. It didn't matter if it was stocks, shares, commodities, crypto, whatever it is. Like, like you are managing money, you are managing risk and, you know, you have specific objectives and you have to treat that, you know, with reverence. You know, <laughs> that, that money took such, you know, that money cost me my health effectively. Like, you know, if you think I'm going to just play with that money, it's, you know, it's, it's not, not the way I, I feel like that would be disrespectful to it. So I call myself, you know, I'm not officially, obviously an asset manager. I'm not FCA registered anymore, but I treat my money like it's my, I'm my own asset manager. I look at things, I look at risk, I look at the different ways you can invest, the different security, the different returns that you can get. And I have a kind of a basket of exposure. And that's how I, I bring that kind of investment approach to property. And that's how I look at it. It's a different way of approaching it. And I certainly resonate with people who do look at it that way. I think there are a lot of things that can be that can be learned that way. I'm not a developer. I'm not on the ground kind of, you know, and, and I don't necessarily understand all the ins and outs of being a developer. I definitely don't claim to. But that's why you have to be very careful who you choose to invest with. And you have to, you know, filter them, assess them and, and choose the very good ones and the ones that share your values and will do right by you. And I'm, I'm doing okay on that front so far. Yeah, what I really like about what you said, two things I want to touch on. So one is many people, particularly in property, new entrants to that, they focus more on how much do I stand to make yeah. as opposed to, well, what is the impact if I lose? What is the time horizon it would take to recoup that money? And also what you just said, which is, you know, how much effort, time and energy did it take to generate that money in the first place? I think that's a really fundamental and important perspective that you have. And that age old tenet of, you know, don't lose money. I think Warren Buffett's number yeah. one, isn't it? Yeah. First rule of investing, don't lose the capital. Second rule of investing, don't forget rule number one. Yeah. <laughs> I literally, it. I did um, a Facebook live on my business page this morning 
and somebody asked about kind of my principles of invested and I'm like you know if it works for him it works for me that's mine so yeah I love that quote and it's a particular you know I'm, I'm really driven at the moment about helping people protect themselves against you know it's sad but in property because there are large numbers involved there are sharks I call them but people kind of set who, who set out to take other people's money and it's why I feel kind of so strongly about that and about respecting people's money that that has taken a lot for somebody to get that and I used to say you know, please, for, for developers, please respect it as if it was your own grandmother's money. You know, if you if you wouldn't risk your grandmother's money, don't think it's okay to risk an investor's money. But my friend Claire Norwood, she spoke to somebody else who said, treat it like it's the Russian mafia's money. I'm like, now we're talking. <laughs> so, we, um, so we use that quote regularly now. But considering the loss or the kind of the downside, as I would call it, is absolutely one of my starting, you know, fundamental, my principles. I have a specific kind of rates and rents approach to how I look at deals. And the W of the rents is worst case scenario, what the worst case scenario is. And then you've empowered me to know if I'm willing to take that risk. And I also know that's also, you know, it, it's kind of, multi-level question I also know I'll know to be honest what the chances of me losing my money are I want to know if they will be honest and upfront enough to tell me hells you can lose all your money on this deal you know normally that wouldn't be the type of deal I would invest in because I'd have something asset backed but I want them to know I want to know a that they've thought about that They've thought about what the worst case scenario is and B, that they will go there. They will risk me walking away by telling me what the worst case scenario is. And if you have those conversations up front and everybody knows what they're getting into, then that makes any conversations down the line a hell of a lot easier. So, Yeah, I love that, that it's not about being seduced by the deal. It's more about the due diligence of the developer. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, you know, gosh, due diligence is something I, I can hardly do a, a chat or a talk or anything without mentioning <laughs> due diligence and risk. I get I get the Mickey take taken out of me a lot. But but that due diligence, as you say, has to work both ways. So I do due diligence on the deal. Obviously, the numbers have to stack. I do it on the person. That's the kind of holistic element that I bring in. Sometimes I use crowdfunding. So I do due diligence on the platform to make sure that that's a good way of, of doing that deal. But I expect the developer to do due diligence on me. They have to make sure I am right for them as well. And it's one of the most common bits of advice I give to developers. Be very careful whose money you take and not just who, but what that amount of money means to them as well. Because I've seen examples, oh gosh, some shocking examples of where somebody's taken a thousand pounds of somebody's money. And I'm not saying that's not a large amount of money, but in the relative deal size, this was, a, mm -hmm. I think, a 600 grand deal that we did and, and um, somebody had a thousand pounds invested that thousand pounds was their life savings that m gives you a highly emotionally volatile and overly invested person that you're dealing with 
So when there are delays, when there are problems, and it's property, so there will be. But so when that happens, the person doesn't have the perspective or the balance to be able to ride that. They are terrified that their life savings are going to disappear in a cloud of smoke. Well, if you'd only taken £100 of that person's money, they wouldn't be, I'm not saying they wouldn't be bothered. Of course, they would be bothered. We should be bothered. But they wouldn't, you know, I don't think they'd have freaked out as much. So certainly how I approach things, and it's certainly what I advise developers to do too. Yeah, it's really wise in business that rule applies also. There are some clients where you can take their project and if they don't have the budget, they micromanage everything. Mm. They flip out at the smallest delays because they don't have that flexibility or that risk tolerance yeah. that definitely carries over into probably all aspects of doing business, I'd suggest. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, I love that. And, you know, it's people think, oh, that you have to accept all clients. And certainly if you're building a business, that you feel like you have to accept all clients. But Again, I've, I've watched friends build businesses and they've, if you get the wrong client for you, doesn't resonate with how you work and your values, it's painful. It's honestly more trouble than the money you earn is worth. Yeah, definitely. I've learned the hard way that my life is governed by what I say no to. And I say no probably 96 out of 100 times. Yeah. Because I realized when I'm saying yes, I'm usually saying yes to somebody else's priorities of my own. And yeah. it's usually a cost that's quite significant to me doing that. That's an excellent point. It really is an excellent point. And something to think about exactly for developers accepting people's money. What's their priority? And make sure you understand what their priority is. And make sure you're prepared to meet that. Else you're going to have an unhappy investor or an unhappy client. Yeah, and it's a relationship business, that uh, that business, isn't it? Oh, totally. It's a people business, as my friend Toby Wilde of Aparo says. Yeah. So with Free the Wage Slave, as you know, one of the things that I'm doing is I want to give people that path out of the traditional life, the 2.4 kids, the living in one location, the going to school, going to college, getting a job and, you know, living supposedly happily ever after. And just asking, you know, what does that other life look like? So if you do want that, you know, what is the path? And one of those paths is property. And I've shared with you and my listeners before, I was one of those people that went to the courses. I spent over £20,000 and I made zero back because I was naive and I didn't realize, actually, you're going to need money for the deals. You're going to need money for the deposits, the refurbs. And I don't regret it in hindsight because I learned an important lesson, but it did set me back probably four or five years where I had to pay off that money. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to get you on to showcase that there is a way to do it in property. So my question, Helen, I guess, is for that person who wants that different life, who's hearing these buzzwords like financial freedom, what is the path into property that is the safer path? Do they need to work and build a nest egg and then invest some of it? Can they go from zero in property? What would you advise somebody who's really starting from nothing? What's the, the safe path into that? What I would say, and, and which you discovered yourself, be very careful about those courses where they charge you an extortionate amount of money to 
what I find with those, um, what, what you end up being, you're in a sales funnel, but you don't realize you are. <laughs> yeah. And there'll yeah. always be another course or another strategy or there'll be another upsell or then you need to do mentorship or then you need to do this. And there's just, it's a never ending like money drain. And yes, you know, you are getting certain skills, but you know, you, you have to be able to implement them. I think there's a lot better ways of doing it. That's not to say there are great mentors out there. There really are great mentors. And I particularly would, I would strongly prefer the ones where you kind of pay as you go along and they recognize that, that you shouldn't be kind of sucked dry of all your, of all your capital because you're going to need it. Anybody that's telling you no money down deals again, like, like really? You know, if something's too good to be true, honestly, it really is. There is a reason that that is such a common saying. So it does depend where you are. It does depend what you want to achieve. We certainly, we talked about this actually on a recent property event that I did with Ranjan Bhattacharya, um, who I'm going to be seeing this week when I go back to London because we're going to be doing a property elevated TV show together. But if you go to his YouTube, you can certainly see kind of ideas from, from various property experts about kind of what we think about these things. But there is various strategies. But what I would say, you know, there's rent to rent, there's deal sourcing, there is, you know, just buying a buy to let, there's building an HMO. What I would say is some of the ones where, where you don't need much capital, people make them sound easy. And if you're going into property for an easy life, honestly, choose something else because it's not. And, and if it is easy, well, actually, come and mentor me because I'm clearly doing something wrong <laughs> if, if you're finding it easy. Um, but what I think you have to look at, and my best advice, I, I'm, I'm not going to recommend a specific strategy because it does depend on what your capital is. It depends on where you want to invest. It depends on the amount of time. But the fundamental thing with property is you need to be adding value. So the days of you buy a single let, yes, you might get it a bit cheaper, a, a below market value, as, as we call them, and you rent that out, then happy days, you sit back, you rent it out, the mortgage is paid, the, the price you know rises or doubles on average every 13 years. Those days, I'm not saying they're gone, but those deals are, are much harder to find that you just buy something, rent it out, the yield's nice, it washes its face, tax, the tax on that has changed, the tax system has changed enormously on that so that doesn't work from that perspective these days that's why kind of hmo house of multiple occupation is a more you tend to get better yields on those but it's a lot more effort because you're now managing five or six tenants whereas with this obviously with a single buy to let you're just managing one tenant so this is where you need to think about what your priorities are like how much hassle can you tolerate because the more hassle you can tolerate it's almost like risk. If you can tolerate more hassle, you know, you get better rewards, kind of serviced accommodation, you know, kind of the, the professionalized version of Airbnb. Well, until COVID, you know, that was very lucrative, but you've got a new tenant every, maybe every, you know, couple of days. So again, how much hassle can you tolerate? My appetite for hassle is extraordinarily low. It's why I'm not a developer. It's why I don't do that type of stuff. So 
if you have a low tolerance for hassle, be very careful what kind of, you know, what business model you choose and who you who you want to kind of operate with. There are, you know, whilst I'm saying things can't be passive, if there's any kind of older listeners here, if you have got a part, you know, I lend a lot of money just on a kind of a loan basis, a secured loan, an asset backed loan. And that can be that's as passive as you can get. I don't think when I say it's not passive, like you have to do your due diligence. You have to understand what you're getting into. It's why I don't call it passive. But there's no kind of there's no on an ongoing basis. There's no kind of day to day management needed. So there's various different ways you can do it. But anybody that's saying kind of no money down or like I've got a very good friend, the lovely Ruth Hobbs of Urban Sister. She's like, what? what is this no money? And she's award winning. She won property investor over her sister, Gillian, won property investor of the year a couple of years ago. She's like, what is all this no money down? Like every deal I've done is all money in. So we call it all money in deals, you know. Yeah. So that there's a lot of capital required to do these things. So do lots of research, speak to lots of people. If there's, you know, I try not to call myself skeptical anymore because it's not the loveliest word. I call myself hyper-realist now. Mm-hmm. I like the Ray Dalio t- term, yeah. but it comes down to the same thing. But if there's glossy brochures, there's run to the back of the room and sign today. <laughs> you know, God, you're going to be a property millionaire by in a year's time. Oh my God, run, run, run a mile. Run a mile. Yeah, I love what you said, that you don't realize you're in the sales funnel. And just the irony of maybe it's the universe or my life is that I've been a marketer since I left <laughs> the corporate world in the nine to five. So I build sales funnels, yet I couldn't see I was in one at <laughs> yeah. the time. <laughs> and I went through the free session, then yep. the $1,000, then the mentorship. Yep. Yep. Um, and why free the wage slave for me? I'll never monetize. I might have people sponsor a podcast, but I'll never directly sell a product because I want that to be a place where we can talk about the other side of the conversation and not worry about, is that going to hurt my conversion rate and the amount of money I make? Because I think we do need to have a real conversation about these things because it is people's livelihoods that that are at stake. Yeah, exactly. And they prey on people's hope value and they prey on kind of desperation you know, I, I was fortunate. Maybe I was never in a desperate enough situation to think handing over 20 grand for a course was, was a good idea. But a lot of people are and a lot of people want to believe in the promises that they are sold. And when you have somebody like that, you know, they're vulnerable. And, and I see it as them being taken advantage of. I, I do know, I must say, I do know people that have gone through these processes and with some of the larger kind of educators and have done really well for, from it. They are the exception. Yes. They really are. Yeah. I would tell people having been through that and been on that side of things, they tend to make you focus on how much money you can make, which minimizes in your mind the risk of the investment. And as a marketer, I know that people do that because it increases conversions. And also, yes, they are going to bring people to the front of the room who have done well, but look at the numbers of how many didn't do well. Look at the average people. And when I looked around that room and I was in the, this was before WhatsApp, I'm ashamed to say, but there were like, you know, Facebook groups and stuff. Most of the people in that didn't become that exception. You're absolutely right. No, no, exactly. And exactly. That's not how it's marketed, you know, and it is, 
it's a marketing game you know it really is and you're told that this is possible and it is possible but you know it's like any you know there's a normal distribution go back to my geeky mathematic brain there's a normal distribution here you know the majority of people i'm sorry it's not the people that are at the front of the room telling you they became millionaires they're your tail ends of that normal distribution curve and believe me so for every you know for every exceptional one that's made it don't forget the tail ends the other side that's lost a lot of money so you know that that yeah. there's the balance for you <laughs> yeah i mean i don't know what the numbers are maybe it's you know 3% succeed i would tell people when you're in that room, look around and ask yourself, are you better than 97% of the people in the room? And unfortunately, my naive young self thought, sure, I can do, you know, whatever anybody else can do, I can be in that top 3%. And sadly, I was wrong. I couldn't. I think it really comes down to knowing, is this a good fit for me, yeah. that type of work? Am I actually going to be able to implement and follow through even if I have the money? I think that's so important as a question to ask yourself. Yeah. And, you know, as I said, there are lots of of good mentors and there are good training, but they're the ones that will sit down with you, understand what you want. I know some companies that you have to interview with them. They interview you to make sure you're right for them because they don't want anybody that they take on failing. That doesn't look good for them. And the amount of investment that they put in personally to kind of handhold people through deals or help them you know kind of assess deals and get better at assessing that this is a good deal and that's a bad deal that's what you want you want someone who cares and for the ones that are churning through thousands and thousands of people at a time how much does anybody care about you let me tell you the answer not very much <laughs> yeah i could definitely confirm that one mm. so do you think property is a vehicle for wealth creation or is it a vehicle for wealth preservation and then growing that wealth? I think it can be both. And I think it depends again, like what you want to achieve. I, at my time of life and with kind of what I've done so far, uh, certainly have a part of me that wants to preserve it. It's why I come from a, what's my worst case scenario? And I don't do kind of risky things. So am I ever going to be one of these that's, you know, gosh, becomes a billionaire overnight because we did this amazing deal and what have you? No, because I'm probably not prepared to take the risk that that would involve to do that deal. Albeit, the longer you're in this game, the more you people you speak to, the more you learn from other people, the more you work out who the good ones and who the bad ones are. I think you 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 can take on what is perceived as more risk but you're more aware of what you're doing and you're more aware and cleverer at being able to mitigate it. So I'm just doing a planning, like a, a planning uplift deal at the moment. And they are, you know, the returns on those are, you know, are, are, are very, very good. But that's taken me, what, five years to do one of those? Actually, no, I have done a couple previously, but I did those in teeny, teeny amounts. This is a, you know, a deal. It's all my money on the line. But again, it's a small deal, like it's a dip my toe in the water with an amount that I'm comfortable. I mean, I'm not comfortable to lose it, but I know what the worst case scenario is. And the worst case scenario is, yeah, we have some burn money. But other than that, you know, we're still the thing will still be worth what we're going to what we've paid for it. So you just need to be aware that the risk reward ratio exists because, you know, <laughs> it's you don't get generally 
you know, astronomical returns without a, a really kind of high degree of risk. And there are absolutely ways of mitigating that. And to be honest, education is one of them, but it's education it's ethical education from people that are going to talk sense to you and not sell you pipe dreams. I've got lots of friends, you know, that do do kind of education and do run courses and do do mentorships. And, you know, I would certainly be, you know, suggesting people speak to them first uh, to see kind of how, you know, what's appropriate for them because they won't take you unless they believe it's the right thing for you as well. So, so if we want to start learning more about property, even if we're not ready to invest, but we say, you know, I'd like to educate myself because in you know five or 10 years, I, I believe I'll be at that point. From the completely free, the podcasts and the books, all the way up to the mentorships, who are those people that are really ethical education providers in the property space? Oh, there are lots of them, I have to say. And there's so much, as you say, there's so much free information and free content out there. If I can give a tiny plug to, I'm a co-founder of the Property Sisters group, and we have a kind of big sisters and little sisters group. It's free, it's non-profit, and we have our own YouTube channel. Go there and have a look at the stuff that we're doing. That's a great place to start. It's not just for women that the content is property wide. It's relevant to anybody. So do go and it's by a lot of our members and there are there is you know men speaking on there too we're not exclusionary from that perspective so um that's a great place there's great kind of publications richard bowser runs a a really good um, publishes a really good magazine called property investor news magazine i did an article for that back in january so if anybody wants to understand due diligence how i look at deals and where to start that's a great article and actually there's a number of people that i really respect that write for that manish kataria um, invest like a pro he writes articles for them richard little who is a vastly vastly he's i think at least third generation developer he has got a free house building business community facebook page online and what he's been doing over lockdown him and his son Brinley Little they have been giving they used to kind of run three-day courses they don't do that anymore but what he's done is split that content down into kind of 20-minute segments or so and he's been doing a hundred days of content so literally they publish one of these on the in that Facebook community every day that goes through finding a deal, assessing a deal, due diligence, funding, how to get investors literally takes you through that whole. I mean, that's development focused, but a lot of the lessons in that are relevant to kind of whatever kind of types, bits of property, um, a property sector you want to go into. So that's worth checking out. Rodcast, like you say, Rod's Mm -hmm. a great guy. Some of his conversation is like, I love listening to that. So some of that conversation is a kind of little higher level. It's maybe not where you'd start off, but, but there's so much. And, um, I'm, I was due to launch my website on Friday, but unsurprisingly i'm having technical issues (laughs) so when i sort those out i actually have a dedicated page on that for people new to property because i get asked this a lot so there will be a whole list of resources including some of those that i've talked about so go and check those out and there's no affiliations i'm not paid by anybody to recommend anybody it's not the way i do things these are people i genuinely 
believe in who will do right by you and who speak sense they're the people they're the people who will try and put you off going into property they're the people that say are you really sure you want to do this you know you're not going to become a millionaire at night have you got the stay in power and i think that's a better way to, to approach it to be honest definitely and i'm so glad i asked that question because the audience can now hear why you're one of my go-to resources. So anytime I have a financial investing property question, I go to Helen. Um, and I also go to you for personal development, you and, and Steph Hartwell from Project Glow, who's a good friend of ours. Yeah. And I want to switch to the personal development stuff for a moment. So you've done so much. I get complete envy when I see your Instagram stories and I see you with Dr. Joe Dispenza and, and all these courses around the world. What are those books or those resources for personal development and the work on the self that you just find yourself recommending again and again? Oh, yeah. I've done a lot of, of work. I spent a lot of time with Dr. Joe Dispenza. And here's is one of the books I really recommend, Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. It's not an easy read in terms of you. You know, there's a lot of internal self-reflection you have to do. Then you have to be prepared to look at yourself. And you have to be prepared to go, oh, my God, I do that. You have to be prepared to look at yourself and go, I don't like that bit of me or, or recognize that that thing that I do isn't working for me anymore. So it's not easy in terms of, you know, it expects you to do some work. But the whole reason you're probably reading that book anyway is because you want to make some changes in your life. So that is certainly one of them. One of my, I think my all-time favorites, certainly at the moment, is um, Untethered Soul by uh, Michael Singer. Read that a few weeks ago. Oh, my God. I've reread that book. Uh, oh, gosh. I think I'm on my fourth read of it. And I read it, and it's like it's like meditating for me. It, it's just, or it gives me this serenity when I'm reading it that oh, it just, just makes it so enjoyable to read. And... Again, it just, it helps you look at yourself and the way you're behaving and actually how you react to things and actually almost kind of look at it objectively such that you see, you notice yourself getting angry, you notice your, your buttons being triggered and gives you, or certainly helps you gain a little bit of perspective of, is this, of choosing that reaction you know, it's it's response rather than reaction. I get to choose how I respond to this. So that's one of my favorites. But I generally like, and this is how I more or less I got into personal development, was through the people that have science backgrounds, but have gone more kind of into the spiritual side of things. Because I feel like if they've come from that left brain world and they're now open to these things, then there must be something to it. So... You know, you're Bruce Lipton, who was a cell biologist. You're Greg Braden, who was a geologist. Dr. Joe himself was certainly into neuroscience. He was a chiropractor. You know, Dr. John Demartini, that, that we both studied a lot with, mm -hmm. um, kind of was a, was a chiropractor and this medical kind of background. So, yeah, there's some, there's some of the guys that I like. And you've seen some incredible transformations, I think, particularly with Dr. Joe. Just share some of those experiences with us. I really have. You know, that Breaking the Habit book is extremely powerful. And, and what he does give you is, is this belief that kind of that anything is possible. And I've seen kind of healings which 
if you've not got the context of Dr. Joe, it, it's kind of difficult to understand these kind of these things that look like spontaneous kind of remissions or healing. So I would recommend kind of you, you read the book to give it perspective. But um, yeah, all, all sorts of transformations. I certainly the, the first event that I went to, a friend of mine that I actually met when I was doing my NLP training, who'd had a very bad back accident um, and walked with two canes by the end of that week he had thrown he was only on one cane by that point but he'd, he'd thrown kind of his other cane away and I came that at that from a very left brain perspective and if I hadn't known the guy personally um, and known him for like for a number of years I wouldn't have believed that transformation was possible Oh, I'd have thought it was, you know, it was staged. You know, there's my hyper-realist yeah. brain. I'm like, oh, here, this is all a fix. This is all, this can't be true. He must be, you know, being paid. If not, I, I, I sat and watched the transformation and there's many examples of that. And, you know, certainly look on Joe's website for the stories. He's a great guy and he's a very, he comes at this stuff from a very science. He has the science. His latest book, it's full of the science and the data that they gather. You know, they've done it. It's all there. So it's not that one. The latest book isn't isn't an easy read because of all the kind of the science in there. But um, if that's what floats your boat, yeah, read that. But not necessarily one to start with, but but yeah. But if but if the first one piques your interest, then then go on to that for sure. I, I really wanted to. Um to get that recorded with you, that, uh, that answer to that question, mm. because I had the same thing when I first saw the videos of somebody who, you know, they said they were in a wheelchair and mm. the testimonials then on stage showing that, you know, they're walking now, my bullshit radar yep. started to ring and ping and make all kinds of noises. And I didn't believe it. Yep. And I had a, a wonderful experience during a meditation. I had what I would call a Kundalini experience yeah. where, you know, something left me and I became a believer at that point. It was when I was in Dubai on a Sunday, it was just me and no one witnessed it, but I had a transformation of sorts. And when I've recommended the dispenser meditations to people, they kind of come back and be like, look, this is weird. <laughs> He's you know, in space. He's making all these <laughs> funny noises and does this stuff work? And I wanted to um, not only share that I had that transformation, but you have been there and you're as skeptical as me and you've seen it with your own eyes. So anybody listening that's trying it out, stick with it. That stuff actually does work. It's real. We're not paid to say that. We've just really experienced the transformation ourselves. Yeah, we have. It, honestly, it's what I credit with kind of that work and those particular meditations. It's what I credit with, you know, I, I was doing kind of, you know, quite well. It had taken, gosh, what, I think I did my first one two or three years ago, my first kind of week-long event with them, and had got my health back to a decent kind of level I'd go through phases. I'd have like a few months of a good phase and then I'd have a bad phase and kind of energy and adrenals wise. And that week and seeing Matt's transformation that week gave me the hope that I could fully recover from, you know, kind of this chronic fatigue and this adrenal fatigue. And I have to say, like, I literally just made my mind up and and it had it had a massive a massive impact on my own physical health. So I've not just seen it happen to other people; like it's happened to me too. 
Absolutely. I would say to anybody out there who's trying to run a business, to become an entrepreneur, to go into property, that work you do on yourself has the biggest carryover into the results you produce in, in the other part of your life. It really, really does. Mindset is everything. You know, you can keep kind of pushing that boulder uphill, but if you haven't sorted your your mind, you know, your mind and your permission, your ability to receive, like if you haven't sorted all that out, then you've, you're making that boulder twice as heavy as it needs to be. But, you know, just make life easier for yourself and, and, and yeah, and work on your mind as much as you work on your business. Yeah, as uh, an old mentor of mine said a, a couple of weeks ago, if it feels too much like hard work, you're probably doing it wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Helen, it's just been wonderful. I'm glad that we got to get you on the platform to share your wisdom with everybody else. For everybody out there who would like to connect with you, would like to you know talk to you, ask a question, or, or just you know follow your journey and start learning from you, where can they find you? Sure, I'm on kind of lots of the social media. Hopefully, by the time this goes out, my website will be live. So that's HelenChorley.com. I'm Helen Chorley Investor on Insta. I have my Helen Chorley Property and Investor page on Facebook. Yeah, though Insta's the main one is the is the easiest one for for you know for questions and people reaching out to me but all those resources that I talked about you know particularly for new people starting out there is a page on my website for that and there's also if you like what I'm saying then there's my some articles and, and the other podcasts like the Rodcast um, I've done some with Crowd With Us I've done one with I mean I've done all sorts so that's all on there too so you might like to to read that because I hope what your listeners have got from this is that I keep it real. Being real and telling things how they are is what I strongly and firmly believe in. And that's certainly what I try to do on my website too. Definitely. So we'll create a resources page for this episode at freethewageslave.com forward slash podcast. I'll get all of the links from Helen, include everything there. So that'll be a good first step for everybody to go to and they can just click away and start going down the rabbit hole. Helen, I just really want to say thank you so much for sharing with us. And uh, it's just been one of my favorite conversations. And I think we'll definitely get a part two at some point. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for giving me this space to speak my truth. It's, it's very liberating for me as well. All right. Thank you, Helen.